Good morning, everyone. Let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Divine Mother, Friend Beloved God, Friend Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashai, Lahiri Mahashai, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Beloved Guru, Paramhansa Yogananda, Paramhansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, Saints of all religions, Friend and Guide, Friend and Guide, Swami Kriyananda. We offer our love and our lives into thy light. We are thy children, children of that light. Make us one with thee. Om. Peace. Amen. Please be seated. We'll start this morning with a song by Paramhansa Yogananda called the Om Song. It's a song that describes the different experiences the yogi has in deep meditation with the chakras. This roar doth come when drowsy if matters dreary drum on shores of bliss on booming breaks all earth all heaven all body shakes the bumblebee now hums along baby om doth softly sing his song from Krishna's flute the call is sweet tis time the watery god to me cords bound to flesh are broken all vibrations burst and meteors fall the hustling heart, the boasting breath No more shall cause the yogi's death The god of fire with fervor sings Om, om, his joyous harp now rings Prana, god with power sounds the wondrous bells, the soul resounds. All nature lies in darkness soft. The star divine is seen aloft. Subconscious dreams have gone to bed. Tis then that one doth hear on thread. Or climb the living tree Hark to the cosmic symphony From Om, the soundless roar from Om The call for light or dark to roam From Om, the music of the spheres from all the mist of nature's tears, 
things of earth and heaven declare. Om, Om, resounding everywhere. From Om, the music of the spheres. From Om, the mist of nature's tears. All things of earth and heaven declare. Om, Om, resounding This next song is an instrumental version of Beautiful Chant by Master, Deliver Us From Delusion.
Our topic today is Kriya, Awakening True Happiness. And our panel with me today is Nayaswami Devarshi and Nayaswami Parvati, and I'm Tiagi Peter. I was told when we were preparing for this week that we were to come in Indian dress. And my brain model and I had quite a discussion about how he was going to participate. (laughs) We had quite a discussion about this, and he wasn't real excited about wearing a hat. But I said, look, it could be a lot worse. You could wear the hat, and I could be a really good ventriloquist. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Part of the reason that I wanted to start with something that was ironic humor, something humorous, uh, was to illustrate the fact that when we talk about happiness, we're really talking about something that is a spectrum. And In telling a joke, we sort of experienced one of the lower levels of happiness, um, something that's pleasant, uplifting, transient. When we talk about awakening true happiness, as we do with Kriya, we're talking about a spectrum that just starts at this level of transient happiness and extends through joy, extends further into ecstatic bliss, and states far beyond that, incomprehensible to most of us, including samadhi. Well, let me talk a little about about some of these states specifically, and then we'll talk some about how um, the brain and our body, how all this ties together. Well, I remember Swami had actually made this comment once that he very early when he was with Master, he had been meditating and had a very deep spiritual experience. And the next time he saw Master, he mentioned it to to Master that he'd had this experience um, where he felt very blissful and ecstatic. And Master just listened quietly. And then his response, which I found very interesting, and I've thought about this for years, he said quietly, that's nothing. (laughs) I think for most of us to have the experience of ecstatic bliss feels like the beginning of something much vaster. But let's go through this whole whole progression. First, we have happiness, I think, for most people in this planet. They would um, be glad just to be happy, where most of the time or some of the time, they at least to have let at least get to have positive feelings, um, feel content about their lives. Uh, Maybe they've had a good conversation with someone and they feel positive afterwards. They've had a nice meal. Uh, They've heard a good joke. Um, Things that tend to make them feel uplifted and happy, even if it's just for a little while. You know, they've done studies on this and they found that even if you've had something tremendously positive come into your life, let's say it's a new relationship or your perfect job or um, you've come into a lot of uh, wealth or new resources uh, that mean you have a lot more flexibility in what you can do, that there is a bump in people's happiness. And the curious thing about it is it lasts about six months. 
which I found very interesting because that's about the same amount of time that when people are in new relationships, often there's that little romantic phase. That's often about six months. And then we're kind of back to who we are and what our baseline level of happiness was before. Well, here we enter Korea. And Korea is about creating higher levels of happiness that extend far beyond this transient level and take us to a new level that's much more expansive. Actually, when we compare happiness to joy, joy is a level of happiness that is, it's a higher level of energy. I mean, someone can have a big meal and feel kind of sleepy afterwards and actually be pretty happy and content um, and would be happy not to talk to anyone. But if you're joyful, that's a very high level of energy and you're sort of bubbling over with energy and can't wait to share it with other people. If you're around other people, it's infectious. They feel your joy. They feel your this happiness just radiating off you, and they're infected with it too, and they become happier and joyful as well. Well, if we're meditating even more deeply, particularly with Kriya, we can enter a state beyond joy, which is ecstatic bliss. And ecstatic bliss is a higher level of energy than being joyful, and it has different characteristics. One of them is it feels like it will never end. It feels timeless. It feels like it has been there since time began with you and God, and it feels like it will be there with you and God when time ends. It also feels like it will never go away, and you feel like, oh, gosh, it's time to go do my service or it's got time to go feed my family. And, well, it'll be here when I get back because it feels so natural. It's just like remembering your mother or remembering your own name. It's something so innate that it has this deep familiarity to it. But what most people find is initially – This is also transient. It lasts a while. In fact, if I was going to make one suggestion to you as someone who's been doing Kriya for 34 years, um, 36 years actually, uh, it's if you're lucky enough to have an experience where you feel ecstatic bliss, call wherever you're supposed to go next and say, I have a personal issue that's come up. Could we reschedule? And... I always have done it the few times I've actually done this. I've actually done it and just said, would that be all right? And, you know, every single time, everything has always worked out. It's always been seamless. It hasn't created any uh, discomfort for anyone else. And I always use that as a test if it's really a true spiritual experience and I should go with it. So here we have happiness, joy, a higher level of energy that's radiant, bubbling outward, Ecstatic bliss, you share it just by being. You feel like you don't even need to go talk to anyone else that just existing in this world and being a beacon of this is radiating outward and touching others. And as your meditation deepens and this ecstatic bliss becomes more intense, you begin to feel connectedness you begin to feel an extension of 
what feels like your own little self into every atom of creation around you. If you're lucky, you'll feel a little extension beyond your own body, maybe even into your little meditation room. What Master has said about it is, again, that's nothing. That's just the beginning. And with Kriya practice, over time, that expanded ecstatic bliss expands to the point of really limitless experience where we enter samadhi. So when we talk about awakening true happiness, we're talking about embarking on this continuum. And very quickly we get beyond the initial phases of simply being happy as an individual to feeling more joyful, eventually to having glimmers of ecstatic bliss, and eventually we're promised that all of us Every one of us, this is totally egalitarian, with deeper meditation will experience these higher states of expanded ecstatic bliss and consciousness, samadhi. I remember when I first came onto the spiritual path here, um, actually the first time I came to Ananda was in 1976, and uh, it was one week after the big fire that occurred here, so the whole place had burned down. In fact, I remember walking onto the property and it was all black. All the hills around here were just black and burned to the ground. And uh, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting to come to do a retreat at a place where there's nothing. (laughs) But, you know, I was really captured by something. And it was that here people had lost every single possession and everyone was unfazed. They were just busy getting back to rebuilding things, having more of a normal life again. They were still doing their meditation. And I remember after I had left my brief two-week little visit here, um, that thought never left me, that I remembered how unusual these people were. And I thought, you know, they are doing something that is making them really different. And I've been meditating for about four years already. In fact, um, I had a very uh, kind of unique introduction to meditation. I just happened to be one of the researchers on one of the first studies on the physiology of meditation that was done in the United States in the early 1970s at UC Irvine. And I had the same ex- kind of experience then that we had people who'd been meditating for 10 years or more. We call them our veteran meditators. They would come in to let us um, put diodes on their heads and um, put them in big plaxis- plastic boxes and measure their oxygen levels. And I remember initially I found these people um, in my sarcastic 22-year-old arrogant mode. Um, I found them a little amusing. Um, <laughs> They smelled like incense. They had these <laughs> giant well, these giant beads around their necks that looked like they're self-defense weapons. And um, they wore these goofy shoes that they called Berkey's, which I assumed meant they bought them in Berkeley. I was in San- <laughs> I was from San Francisco, so I assumed Berkey's meant Berkeley. But something really caught me was I noticed two things about these people. They were incredibly kind. 
They were uniformly happy throughout the entire time we were there. And these were very long, frustrating experiments for both the researchers and probably even worse for the participants because they were getting the itchy, sharp little diodes in their scalp and getting their blood drawn. And the thing I noticed about them was they maintained their equanimity. They were happy throughout. They thought many of the stuff that went wrong, that sort of, I went, oh, no, like when I'd go to draw somebody's blood and it would squirt across the room by accident. (laughs) They would think that was funny. (laughs) And I was horrified. (laughs) Are they going to pass out? And... And I remember how struck I was by their sense of humor. It seemed like every one of them had this incredible, I think what a British, uh, British national would call a ripping good sense of humor. <laughs> and I looked at them and I looked at the researchers that I was working with and I thought, you know, they, ha- they are doing something that makes them different and I need to find out what, what that is. And it was that they were meditating regularly. So with a little bit of introduction like that, I came here to Ananda and saw that same energy here, but very serious. People taking this path very seriously, joyful, that same creative, upbeat, expansive energy. But there was even a deeper level of seriousness about what they were doing. One of the things that struck me is that the the conversations were so much about meditating to find God. And I would have to say it really perplexed me initially because I could see meditating to be a better person. I could see meditating to become more selfless. I could understand those things with where I was at. But this concept of finding God, I finally just had to say, well, I think Yogananda is my guru. I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't wait to take Kriya. In fact, I remember when Jyotish and Davy told me that uh, I was accepted to take Kriya, I thought I was going to dance a jig. <laughs> I don't know if they remember that, but I just about jumped out of my skin. I was so excited. Um, at that point, the concept of finding God or having a deep spiritual experience was so far beyond my understanding and my um, experience with life at that point that I just had to assume that that's something out there that I'll learn about. It's a little bit, I think, for most of us, like talking about samadhi. It's not something we've experienced, hard to even conceive of. Well, one thing that you you will find as Kriyabans is that over time, the reality of God and the reality of having a relationship with God manifests itself. And you begin to find subtle things happening, that you'll be in the middle of a very busy day. Um, Maybe you're having um, an inharmonious conversation with someone, and you need to say just the right thing, and suddenly you find the thought comes into your mind precisely what you should say. I can't tell you how many times as a physician that I've been sitting with a patient, they're telling me something about their medical problems, and suddenly I'll realize that's not why they're here. They're here because it's this totally separate thing, and I'll stop them and I'll say, what about this? And they'll immediately stare at me and say, that's what I was really worried about, but I didn't want to bring it up. (laughs) And I know that's not me. 
In fact, I have, um, I've had that experience before where uh, I actually had this very strange experience. This was even back when I was a medical student. Um, once I walked into an exam room uh, in dermatology, and this person had a rash. And I looked at it, and the thought came immediately came into my mind. It was so unusual. It's like somebody inserted it. Um, this is intertrigo. And I walked out of the room, and I asked my medical student chums, I said, do any of you know what intertrigo is? And they said, no, we've never heard the term before. And I said, okay, well, I'll go ask the attending physician. So I went, and I said, well, I have a patient who has this rash, and uh, would you come look at it with me? I want to make sure my diagnosis is right. I think they have intertrigo. And the fellow sort of looked at me a little oddly, but he said, okay. So we walked in, looked at the rash, and we walked out, and he said, your diagnosis is correct, doctor. Um, it is intertrigo. And I said, okay, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he said, well, wait a minute. You told me it's intertrigo. And I said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and he said, well, it's a bit of an archaic term. We don't really use it anymore. When I was a medical student 35 years ago, we would use it. But we don't really use it now. And you might not even see it in your textbooks. That's why I was a little curious why you used it. Um, and now we use a different term. He told me what it was and how we treated it and all that. But I remember that from that moment on, I realized that there were other forces at work in our thinking that when we need things that God can help us in very specific ways. Um, I actually had this experience at a recent Kriya where I was uh, actually a participant in the Kriya and was praying uh, to be changed. I was asking, Master, could you please change me? I need so much to change. Please help me change. And I was doing that for about two or three minutes, and suddenly I felt this insertion again. And it was, please change me so I may give you to all. And in that instant, I thought, oh, I've been praying wrong on this. That that's really the correct prayer is not change me just for myself, but change me so I can serve all, that I can offer God to all. And I could definitely feel that that was something that came into me. It wasn't something that sprang out of my own consciousness. You know, I thought I would talk just briefly about a few of the things that we've come to understand about how the brain and body operate, because I think it has a lot to do with this topic of Kriya and um, awakening happiness, because I think most people look at their bodies and their brains and Everything in their past often is boat anchors, things kind of holding them back, um, preventing them from really being able to change quickly and rapidly and grow as much as they would like. And it is such an inspiring message now that it turned out what Master was saying back in the 1930s, that if you meditate, it will change your brain. And I would have to tell you, in 1975, if you had said that to 100 neurologists, they just would have burst out laughing. Um, you can't change your brain. Once you're over 25, your brain is set in stone. It's like concrete that's set. Um, unless you damage it, there's nothing you can do. Well, now we know that the brain is extremely changeable. We call it neuroplasticity, plastic for changeable. And what we've discovered is 
over the last 30 years is not only is the brain changeable, but it loves to change. In fact, the question we should be asking ourselves is, who do I want to be in six months? Because everything that I'm doing right now, what I'm eating, what I'm thinking, um, what I use for entertainment, how much I'm meditating, how deep I am meditating, all these things are affecting our brain to cause it to change in a specific direction that will end up being who we are in six months. And I've often felt when I'm in a, a dry period or a slow period with my own meditation to remind myself of that, that what I'm doing right now, I may not feel that great today. I may have a cold today. I may have a headache today. Um, maybe I'm just not feeling that excited about sitting down and meditating. Um, but what I'm doing right now is going to make a huge difference about where I will be six months from now. And it's often been enough to help me make that little extra effort to keep myself moving along on the path toward God-realization. The two areas of the brain that I think are worth talking about, and I'm going to use my brain model here, and I hope he doesn't mind I take his hat off. The first area Master used to talk about frequently was the frontal lobes of the brain. And it's this portion of the brain that's sort of the inch and a half that's furthest forward. The key area here is called the prefrontal lobes, but there's a little area behind that. So that entire area, which is really more like three inches, uh, it's called the frontal lobes. And the prefrontal lobes and frontal lobes uh, together contain many of the structures that end up being developed when we meditate regularly. In fact, if you look at our ability to have a sense of humor, it's a pre, it, we know now it's a prefrontal lobe function. Your ability to get along with people harmoniously, it's a prefrontal lobe function. Your level of happiness moment to moment, whether you're kind of a happy, um, energetic person or whether you feel kind of depressed is related to how your prefrontal lobes are functioning. Whether you're creative, how quickly you can learn new information. These are all prefrontal lobe related functions. And guess what? When we meditate, when you're doing your Kriya Yoga, the prefrontal lobes get excited and augmented and they develop. So all the cells in this area of your brain begin growing and interconnecting at very high rates, at new levels that allow you to have behaviors that you didn't realize you were capable of manifesting. I'm going to take the outer brain off. That's all right. He's plastic and durable. <laughs> He's even been devoured by the x-ray machine in the SeaTac airport. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so I'm holding the brain up again, but this time I'm just holding it up by the brain stem. For those of you who are interested, right above my index finger is the medulla. I'm going to turn it back around. And these two ram's horn-shaped pieces, sort of shaped like a C on each side, that's the limbic system. In fact, I always get a kick out of this. Most of the things in the brain, no one had any idea what they did when they got named. And so... This is called the limbic system because it's shaped like a half moon or a limbus. You've probably, many of you have heard of the part of the brain that's concerned with memory called the hippocampus. 
Um, you know why they call it that? Because somebody, an anatomist, thought it looked like a seahorse. <laughs> I'm not picking this up. This is true. So limbic system, very different part of the brain. And its function and concerned are with much more primitive types of activities, emotions, and instinctual functions. Um, you can find very healthy limbic systems in a rabbit, in a crocodile, very simple animals all have limbic systems just like we do. The happy news is for us is the way our brains are wired is that our prefrontal lobes have an inhibitory effect on the limbic system. When I see someone in my medical practice who comes in and they're extremely anxious or they're depressed or they have a substance use disorder like they're an alcoholic, I can be sure that their limbic system is overactive and their prefrontal lobes are largely silent. They're, they're not working very well. And it's one of the reasons that we commonly recommend as part of our therapy for them is learning to meditate. In fact, of our patients that we actually work with with our therapists, the therapists probably about 80% of the time teach someone a very simple form of meditation. And the reason we do that is the prefrontal lobes, when they get activated by meditation, have an inhibitory or suppressing effect on the limbic system. So all these uh, patterns of anxiety, panic, fear, anger, um, attachment that are worked on by our limbic system, the limbic system automatically gets quiet. In fact, they've actually found this in studies on veteran meditators is that their limbic systems are actually quite unarousable. They put them in a room, they expose them to a loud sound like a horn being blasted, um, and they hear the horn. They, they can look at the electrical activity of their brain, and clearly they have heard the horn, but their brain just recognizes it and immediately goes back to its normal function. Someone who is not a meditator, there's this recognition of the horn sound, and then there's this echo that may go on for up to 10 minutes where their brain continues to respond to that. And part of the reason for that is the unarousability of the limbic system. The one other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly before um, uh, moving on to our next speaker is one other thing has also come up in our research, which is phenomenal. Um, I had actually heard that Master had commented on the fact that genetically we get changed by Kriya Yoga as well. And up until about um, 10 years ago, I would have gone, well, that may be true, but how in the world does that happen? And is it, do we have any evidence of it? And I felt sort of like I was right back in 1980 again, thinking about the brain and does the brain change? And guess what? Our genetic material, our DNA is changeable. It turns out there's a whole field now called epigenetics. Many of our genes that determine whether we're an alcoholic or anxious or um, have a tendency toward diabetes or high blood pressure or to being a happy, a happy person or an unhappy person, many of these genes are in on or off positions. And you can change that position whether it is on or off. So you may be someone who is predisposed to diabetes, but imagine if you could turn that gene off. And what we're finding is that's possible. 
And one of, one of the things that has been studied most keenly is what about people who meditate? Does it change their epigenetic nature, the on and off status of genes? And they're finding that it does affect your genetic material that way. The genes that were turned on, for example, for substance use can get turned off. Here's the other thing that is fascinating. Let's say you're, um, you're thinking about having children and you're meditating. You're affecting your genetic material. You're turning genes off. And guess what? When you pass that gene on, it'll get passed on in its turned off position because of your meditation turning it off. So a great thing to recommend to parents, start meditating because you want to you pass on great genes. The other comment that I'd make quickly is um, we've found that our genetic material's ability to replicate, that's how we create new cells. I mean, our body is constantly creating new cells as old cells die off. So we're essentially being remade um, every few months. All our cells are being turned over, some much more quickly than others. Bone cells, it's a longer period. Corneal cells, it's very quickly. And one of the things that we found is that you can tell a lot about the health of a person's DNA by looking at the little cap on the end of their DNA strands that's called uh, a telomer. There's a cap on each end. And to be able to unfurl, that's how DNA copies itself, is it unfurls and then you, each strand, which is now unfurled, it's normally a double helix. Now that it's unfurled, each side adds another unit to itself so you end up with two sets of DNA. From the first set, which is just two strands, took the two strands, they've added strands. The thing that allows that to happen flawlessly is these telomeres. If the telomeres are long and chubby, the replication happens beautifully. If they're very short, much more likely you're going to get errors and the person goes on to have health issues because of that, because of uh, errors in the replication of their DNA. Here's the thing that's very interesting. Initially, some of the first studies were done on people that were raised in environments that were violent or impoverished, and they found that 20-year-olds had telomere lengths that were very short and that their chronological age, even though it was 20, their biological age was more like 40 or 50. They found the converse was true, that in people who meditated, that their biological age was actually much younger than their chronological age. This is very interesting. I was asked by uh, a reporter from uh, the Times of India not long ago um, about taking care of people at Ananda. And what did I see about how their health was different? And the first thing that kind of leapt out of my mouth was, well, they all look about 10 years younger than you'd expect them to be. A 60-year-old looks like a 45 or a 50-year-old. And really, I would expect that now in what we've seen in this data. When you meditate, your your telomeres are longer, chubbier, and so your physiologic health, and this means your brain health, all your organs, everything, are going to behave much younger. 
fact, one way you can think of it is meditation in its own way is kind of this fountain of youth physiologically. It keeps our brain healthy, keeps our brain and body awake and alive, prepared for God realization. You know, I'd just like to close with one final thought that when we enter on the path of Kriya, remember it is an all-encompassing process. It involves what we eat, who we talk to, our entertainment, and it involves our Kriya yoga practice. And it will absolutely sure give you not only joy, not only ecstatic bliss, but expose you to the understanding that we all have the possibility of real sanctity of communion with God. I have to follow. <clears throat> I'm 100 years old, by the way. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. I've always thought, actually, when I first came to Ananda, um, I had a picture taken uh, for my driver's license, of, I think a year or two before, and it was, it was pretty bad, <clears throat> not just for a driver's license, but just energy. And then after I was here a year or so, I had another driver's license issued, and it was literally like night and day. I was so happy, and I was. I was so happy to be here. I wanted to share with you just a little bit about my experience of practicing Kriya Yoga. And I mean in life, what happens. Um, I did come here in the early 70s. I was very fortunate to find Ananda and a true path, a true teacher, and most importantly, an avatar for a guru, as well as all the rest of them. I mean, if you think about it, we're living in an extraordinary time, extraordinary time. We have five avatars for our gurus. I remember when I first came here, I visited in 1971, and I, uh, I went to talk to Swami Kriyananda at one point, and I was very new to everything, and I had read the autobiography, but still very new. And I said, why are there five gurus? He said, get over it, basically. You know, just, it's just how it is. Don't, let's not talk about that. You know, I mean, it was just one of those stupid questions. But, uh, but I just thought there's just so many people to relate to. You know, I didn't understand how to do that. But, uh, but when I came, I came back the next year I moved here, and uh, it, was, it was not easy to come here. Just because of energy, I really, really wanted to be here. And uh, I knew about Kriya Yoga. I had read the autobiography and was thrilled by it. I just thought, wow, <laughs> the whole thing. And so um, when I came back, I knew I wanted to be here. It was always very confusing. I remember the year before when I had visited, I'd, I'd go up and I'd ask someone about, well, what about membership? And they'd kind of look a little puzzled at me and then say, go talk to so-and-so. And so I'd go. I never, never did get an answer. And so when I moved here with a friend, um, we just simply hooked up our trailer to our little Rambler station wagon and drove up and arrived and told Satya we were here. <laughs> so it was real simple. But, but also I always knew at the core of what was happening here, as Peter said, um, it was very profound. It was very serious. 
and the people here, not only Swami Kriyananda, who I knew was speaking absolutely the truth, and it was so clear and so beautiful and so devotional and just everything. It satisfied mind and heart and soul, every part of your being, but also the people around him who had been here a few years longer than me. And I just thought, they're real. They're real people. They're not just, oh, yes, Swami, oh, yes, Swami. Nothing like that, nothing like that. People have so many misconceptions about the spiritual path and what it looks like. But here, what you see here, all of you, all of us together, this is it. This is what it really looks like. And it's thrilling. I mean, I have a picture that somebody gave me recently of where I lived when I first came to Ananda, and I was thrilled with it. It's a little trailer that's about 15 or 20 feet long with a little tar paper shack stuck on the front of it, and it's right where the lodge is up at the meditation retreat. And there's a little wooden chair out in front of it, and I remember sitting there reading the Raja Yoga course, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was so blissful to be there, to be in truth, to be in the teachings, and to know that there was Kriya Yoga. Always at the center, even though in those days we did not have a Kriya ministry, Swami was the Kriya ministry. He was everything, (laughs) but he was the Kriya ministry. And he gave Kriya initiation three or four times a year from what I remember. Uh, during the early years. I came in 1972 and took Kriya right about now at Spiritual Renewal Week. I don't really remember much about that first initiation, but I took it every single time Swami gave it. I just kept taking it because I could feel that it was something that I needed to absorb in my consciousness, in my practice, in every possible way, but I really needed to absorb it. And I was fortunate enough to, and crazy enough to just move here and and do that. I, it was the center of my life. And yet there were lots of things to do. I mean, wow, I lived at the meditation retreat. It poured down rain over the winter. We commuted every single day down to the farm here and made flower jewelry with little gas masks over our faces all day long. And I thought it was great. (laughs) I just thought it was fabulous because I was doing something real and I was living my ideals and it was anchored in the practice of Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga is incredible, and I I had the good karma. I knew it from the time I heard about it. Why? Because you hear about karma and reincarnation, and, you know, the brain is great, but what about that bag of karma that's millions of years old that you've got to drag along with you and that really binds you and you think my god what will i ever do about this how can i ever resolve this and and the heaviness that it brings and the habits that i don't want anymore and the person that i don't want to be anymore what do i do about it and when i came here that was really one of my main questions 
is this a place where I can do something about my spiritual life and really evolve it? Kriya Yoga was vital to that process, and it was vital, as Peter said, to every single person here that was here for the right reason. We had a lot of people that came and went in those days. When I came, there were 90 or 100 people living here, and uh, a lot of them came for a while, and then they left, And but there was a building core of people, of devotees, of disciples, of Kriyabans, and we all had satsang with each other, and we practiced Kriya Yoga in the morning before we got in the back of the truck to ride down to the farm, <laughs> and we practiced it at noon when we had a few minutes to meditate. And we went back to the evening. No electricity, no running water, no bathrooms, outhouses. Hey, it was normal. You know, it was not a sacrifice. Somebody said to me, oh, we so appreciate all the sacrifices that you all made when you came. It was an absolute joy and a thrill to live that. It was just normal because everybody else around. I mean, if we had had anything to compare it with, it might have been a little weird. But, but it was just everybody lived like that who was at Ananda and really in the area as well. When we went home at night, we practiced Kriya. And that rhythm of Kriya, you know, I looked at the topic and I thought, a, a Kriya, awakening true happiness but Kriya, yes, it definitely does awaken true happiness. Why? Because it goes in, and it is so true. It goes into working on the spine and the energy in the spine. And when you work with Kriya and that Kriya breath in the spine, little by little, and it takes practice, it takes time. You have to do it every single day, at least twice a day. But when you do that, it starts to resolve the, the reactive process that's built into our bodies and into our minds. It's called the likes and dislikes. And that, you know, we, we work on it outwardly. We're aware of it. When you come on the path, you go, oh, my God, look at all the stuff I've got to work on. If you had to work on it only outwardly, it would be very depressing <laughs> and very frustrating and would only leave you at, an, at a certain level of spiritual evolution. But Kriya Yoga goes right into the center of the problem. And twice a day, every day, you never miss. You practice Kriya, and you're passing that breath up and down the spine, and it is inexorably resolving one of the key problems that we have in growing spiritually, resolving those likes and dislikes, washing away the intensity of it. You know, when I think of Kriya Yoga, one of the phrases from the Bible comes, I believe it's from Revelations, it's the washings of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I feel Kriya does. It washes every day, continually, and regenerates anew who we really are. Anew, it simply is uncovering our soul. When we have likes and dislikes and we're very attached and we live outside of ourselves, there's no way 
that we can really know that we have a soul. But as we practice Kriya, which is an incredible gift from God, an incredible gift through our gurus, if you have Kriya, never let go of it. Always practice it, no matter how ridiculous it looks. Coming home at 3 a.m. from the airport in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. do your Kriyas, Mm -hmm. and then get up a few hours later and do them again. Why? Because it's the most important thing to our happiness that we've been given. And it is a great, great gift. But as we do that, we find that those soul qualities really begin to manifest. And as Peter said, he has a great opportunity of working in the clinic and seeing all kinds of people. And just that thing, that example of seeing someone and just knowing what's wrong with them. Well, for all of us, we we can help each other in that way. We're medical. We're not medical doctors. We're spiritual doctors. And our satsang with each other, as we practice Kriya together and individually, as we start to uncover those soul qualities, then we begin to see the soul in each other. And we see what isn't the soul in each other. And very kindly, and maybe through prayer, and maybe through a little word here and there, but nothing heavy. We help each other to move forward and to let go of those things that are holding us back. You know, I've thought about Kriya, and really I'm glad Peter mentioned the path of Kriya, because every single thing that we do, and I was thinking, all the books that Swami Kriyananda wrote, they're all the path of Kriya Yoga. Every single one of them shows us how through marriage, through education and raising children, through business, through leadership, through being a channel, through everything, it shows us how to detach, how to practice those things in the right way, live them in the right way, and therefore our energy is freed up as though we're living in the highest age. And those all the strands of our life are little by little, gradually brought together. And the path of Kriya Yoga, you know, again, it's not glitzy. It's not dramatic. You know, you don't have people falling over in samadhi as we talk about this path. But they will be liberated. They will be free. Because Kriya Yoga and the practice of it does that. It brings, as we live our lives, and that's our wonderful uh, dharma, our wonderful opportunity in this lifetime that we all chose. Remember, we all chose it. To be in a time when we're not in the Himalayas, we're here in life, we're living, we work, we live, we have families, we uh, live and die, we everything and how to bring that soul consciousness into every single thing that we do. And as we do that, that's liberation. That's the path of liberation. It's the path of Kriya Yoga. And all those strands, little by little, year by year as we practice, come together. And then you know what they do? They go out through the spiritual eye, and you don't ever have to come back again.
<laughs> if you want, if you want. But that practice of Kriya Yoga really does that. It really is a liberating technique. And this is a liberating path. It's not just a nice path. It's not just something to be able to, uh, you know, tell your friends about and, and uh, share with others for, you know, stress reduction. Yes, it does all of that. It'll do everything. But it also has the promise, which it will fulfill, of liberation. Um, I was also remembering, and this is kind of a, well, maybe I'll do that, maybe I won't. Um, <laughs> no, I have some silly things here too. But one of the other things I want to mention is that um, uh, also Kriya, and again, practicing it for a long time, again, 40 years is nothing. It's nothing. We've had millions of lifetimes to build up our, our attachment to habits of and involvement in delusion. So you get some insights. But the other thing that I've felt about Kriya is that it, it starts to bring in a sustaining energy. That happiness, it not only awakens happiness, but it sustains it. And you have this incredible thing happen where, as Peter said, I'd only been here four years when the fire happened. But I thought, Jai Shiva. Jai Shiva, hey, burned the whole community down. Now we get to, get to work and build it up again. But it didn't, and I didn't lose everything. I wasn't one of those. For people that did, it was more of a test, for sure. But the practice of Kriya evens out your reactions. So likes and dislikes, reactions, action, reaction. It starts to even those out and, wow, and, uh, and allows us to live through, and especially in this time, I will say, we have an incredible opportunity. You better practice Kriya Yoga because there's a lot going on. If you don't have it yet, prepare and, and take Kriya. But all the ups and downs, all of the... Uh, uh, great stuff that's happening today and all of the extremely negative, very dark, very heavy. As you pull back into your spine and therefore your soul qualities, you'll be able to move through a lot of things that are probably coming our way. They're there. You know, I'm thinking, I'm talking about things in the world, maybe our own karma, but things in the world that are happening that we go, oh, wow. But as we even out, we not only are able to, um, I was going to say react, but able to act in a better way when things like that happen, but we're also able to give energy. I remember, you know, the essence of the Bhagavad Gita is an incredible book, incredible. And uh, in there... There are things every so often that you just think, wow. Dharmadas read something a number of months ago, and I got the section that he read from, and it was talking about the state of mind of the yogi. And it said that the yogi is one who is not involved in the world, but is very, always very interested. 
You know, it's not that we want to put a bag over our head and hide and say, oh, well, all that negative stuff that's happening, I don't even want to know about it. No, we need to know, but we need to know from a place of strength, soul strength, so that we can give energy. And that's what it also said in the Gita. The yogi is interested in everything, not involved, but interested and gives energy, not waiting to receive it. And I thought, wow, what an incredible way to just say, that's how we should all be. That's how we should all be. The other part of Kriya Yoga that I wanted to mention is that it also allows us a very powerful way to cooperate with God's grace. This is where the guru comes in, This is where the blessings of the guru are vital. Otherwise, Kriya Yoga, and there's all these incredibly ridiculous um, discussions online about Kriya and what about this and what about that. If you're practicing Kriya Yoga and you're doing it and trying to attune to your guru's blessings, you will know what to do. And that practice will be liberating for you. It will take you deeper than anything you can possibly imagine. And cooperating with that guru's grace allows us, that's what allows us to be free in the end. I re- and I'll close with this. I remember uh, being with Swami Kriyananda. Uh, Devi was interviewing him for preparing for the book, rewriting a book on his life, a biography, which will happen at some point. But she was asking him a lot of questions, and uh, I was there. It wasn't a long time, but one of them was about, uh, about how you get free, about grace. And he, I was, I've never forgotten it for several reasons. One, he said, You can be doing everything right, and yet God will come to you in his time. That's one part. The other part, when he said that, he was completely relaxed and blissful. Remember those things because, you know, we can get so anxious about our spiritual life It just takes time. This whole lifetime, just figure it's a long-distance run. You're going to practice Kriya Yoga till the day you die, and then you'll probably go into light, you know. But the Guru will be there for you, and in the meantime, as you go along, remember to relax into that super-consciousness. I always remember, Swami, it just, you can be doing everything right, But then you have to just relax and let God come to you as he wills. And then you will find freedom and liberation in this lifetime. I'm going to talk mostly about an overall approach and attitude towards Kriya Yoga, towards the path of Kriya. There's a lot that we take for granted with the path of Kriya Yoga, those who have been doing it a long time. And what I'll be talking about will also be applicable and true for any true spiritual path. And the most important thing to remember is that these things change us from the inside out. Swami Kriyananda has said to practice Kriya from the inside out. And even something simple as the energization exercises, you'll notice that 
when you watch a video of Swamiji practicing them, he is very controlled and inward with the exercises, whereas people who practice them more outwardly, their arms are flinging all over the place and there's a lot of excess motion, as if people might think that the greater the motion, the greater the flow of energy. And he does it from within in a very centered way. And that's the great blessing of being around people like Swamiji and others who have been practicing these things for a long time, is that there's a teaching just in watching people how they do things. Even just the simple acts of devotion and the way a parent is with his child, it really teaches us on deep inward levels how to love God, how to follow the path of Kriya Yoga. There's something I'm going to talk more about the bigger picture first, again, which is applicable to any true spiritual path. People often on the path of Kriya who have followed Yogananda for many years and maybe haven't tried other spiritual paths really take for granted the way that Yogananda married devotion and technique. And it's really, really rare in this world. In India, you'll see there's bhakti yogis, and then there's people who have hatha yoga and kriya practices. And maybe sometimes the two are done one after the other, but Yogananda actually married them as one. And that's really where the power of kriya yoga comes from, is to practice them and to understand them in this way. There's something that applies to this whole topic of this week that Swami wrote in his book, The Renunciate Order for a New Age. I can't believe he waited until nearly the end of his life to write this important thing. And I have a feeling maybe he was saying it all along, but I just wasn't listening. But he said, applying it to the search for divine bliss, he said that love is the first manifestation of bliss. Love is the first manifestation of bliss. And so I think you could almost say by extension that love is a prerequisite to reach divine bliss. And you'll see this with devotional practices. You'll see it with Swami Kriyananda, who in the early days of Ananda, I think in the middle ground of his life, he was less expressive devotionally. In the very early days of Ananda, he was more a devotee of Divine Mother and chanting Indian chants. And then this big work was necessary in writing all these books. And then towards the end of his life, you saw it again. But you'll find that when you practice deep devotion, that underneath it is the experience of deep divine joy. Asha talked yesterday about this chant that, or a song that Yogananda used to sing and that he wrote called Divine Love Sorrows. And I have the same reaction that she has to that chant, which is, I love singing that chant. I will take walks and just sing it over and over again. But it's really a sorry, sad chant if you look at the words. The beginning is about the yearning of the soul. I've been searching for en- endless incarnations. It ends on a very sad note. I'm singing this sad, sad song. It almost sounds like a country and western song if you look <laughs> just at the words. But you'll find that in, if you in, look in yourself, if you look in yourself during your deepest devotional moments of yearning, those moments when the tears flow because you just have such deep, intense longing for God, you'll find that if you introspect at those moments and look within, you'll see that there's deep, divine joy underneath all of it. 
because this answers this question of why there are these bhakti yogis who spend an entire lifetime chanting for God. And Ram Prashad is an example of one who uh, Master would sing some of his songs, and I understand he would uh, carry a book of his poems when he was younger. And Swami, towards the end of his life, would often tell a story about Ram Prashad, where Ram Prashad was a, a bhakti yogi and a devotee of God as Divine Mother, as Kali. And one day he was working in his garden, and he was stringing some strings and tying together a fence. And he needed some help because he couldn't do it by himself. And so he saw his daughter, and he called his daughter over, who was a young girl, and he asked her to help. And as they were working, Ram Prashad was singing his songs to Divine Mother. And the daughter asked him, well, who are you singing to, and what are you singing? And Ram Prashad says, oh, I'm singing to my Divine Mother, but she's naughty, and she just never, never answers me. And the daughter just said with a sense of humor, she said, well, if she never answers, why do you even sing to her? And then she laughed, and she ran away. And later that day, Ram Prashad went to his wife and went home, and he mentioned to his wife that this experience with the daughter. And the wife said, that's impossible. Our daughter has been completely on the other side of town all day, and it's so far away that there's no way that she could have been there helping you. Sure enough, when the daughter came home, they asked the daughter, and she said, no, no, I was gone all day long. And Ram Prashad, of course, realized that this was the Divine Mother come to him to bless him. And I think to remind him, but to remind us all, that when we are in those moments of divine yearning, that the God, Divine Mother, whoever we, however we relate to God, is already there within that yearning. Where does that yearning come from except it comes from God. And this touches on something that is important to understand for two reasons. One, that divine joy is always there. And I tell you, next time you're in this state of deep yearning and just really missing divine bliss in our true home, again, introspect and see that there is divine bliss bubbling underneath it, almost being the cause of this yearning bubbling up. Master Paramahansa Yogananda, he said that advanced yogis will often spend lifetimes in this what he called the divine romance and having this relationship of this yearning and this separation and feeling the separation and he said that advanced yogis sometimes will do this for incarnations just to enjoy the relationship and to enjoy the divine joy of that relationship and of course in any relationship there has to be separation and then he said then when they've had enough of that then they just merge into divine bliss and merge into God. So when we practice devotion, understand that devotion, love, is the first manifestation of divine bliss and that this is how we reach divine bliss, but also to understand that in that moment of devotion and in that moment of yearning, divine joy is always underneath everything that we experience in that moment, and we just have to look for it. And it really... It is who and what we really are. There's a chant that we sang this morning. It wasn't a coincidence. I asked them to chant it before the class today. It was in, uh, I don't remember the name of it, Light the Lamp of Thy Love. I remember the words. And I'm going to use this chant as a way of sort of describing the approach to God 
in the path of Kriya Yoga, but really the approach to God that all must take. But how the path of Kriya and the techniques of Kriya really work with helping us to achieve this state. Kriya we think of as just techniques. But again, what Yogananda gave us in the way he presented it to us is really extraordinarily unusual, his overall approach to God and combining techniques with that. I loved it when I heard one of our speakers today, because, or a few days ago, because it's something I've used, which is they described Kriya and the techniques as a technology. And I, it's exactly the same word that I use a lot. Technology, the original meaning of the word, was simply uh, a system or a, a practice to achieve a particular end. And you could say that a lot of modern technology has the goal and the purpose of connecting us to the Internet. You could say that the technology of Kriya, its purpose is to connect us to God. And the technology and the te- techniques of Kriya give us the power to be able to do all these things that we've been talking about all week, right attitudes, being able to be calm, being able to concentrate at the spiritual eye, being able to meditate every day. And so I'm going to touch on some of these different approaches to Kriya and different important aspects of it using this chant. The first words of the chant are, In my house, with thine own hands, light the lamp of thy love. Light the lamp of thy love. People often, when they hear about devotion, some people may say, well, I'm not a devotional sort, and I'm a Gani yogi, and I don't need devotion. And Yogananda essentially said that we do need devotion. And I think maybe it's a reaction or response to thinking that I can't get devotion, and I don't know how to get it. Master said that there's one quick, easy, seamless way to get devotion. And he said, all you have to do is go to God and pray to Divine Mother, give me devotion. It's as simple as that. That devotion doesn't come, it doesn't uh, start being generated within our own self. And this is the the chant. This is why, in my house, with thine own hands, Bless me with thy love. Bless me with that devotion. The way Master put it in a talk on Kriya Yoga, interestingly, so this is all part of the path of Kriya Yoga, he said that the charcoal doesn't become red by itself. It needs the other charcoal that's flaming. It needs that fire to ignite it. And the charcoal, its nature is to become inflamed and to become red. There's fuel there, and that's its purpose and its nature is to become red and hot. But he said it doesn't become red by itself. And so it needs an influence. And this is why simply just the best thing is to pray to God, give me devotion. But he was also applying it in the idea of fellow devotees, people who have great passion and love for God, that simply being in their presence, our charcoal gets ignited and becomes red hot by chanting with devotees and being with other devotees. I'm willing to bet that you know three months from now, six months from now, You might not remember all the words that were spoken this week. You may remember even just a couple of key points. But I'm willing to bet that you're going to remember and still feel that flame that's been ignited and awakened in your own heart by the devotion, by the joy, by the enthusiasm, by the inspiration. And this is the importance of satsang. It's also just the importance of understanding, of putting yourself into... uh, ways of trying and seeking out red-hot coals 
to awaken your own devotion. This means watching inspiring devotional movies, listening to devotional music rather than worldly music. A good example, and just this example also shows how individual and unique devotion is. It's a beautiful, devotionally inspiring film that I've recommended often. It's a movie that Yogananda watched. It was the first Indian movie to appear in the United States in all the theaters in the early 40s, and Yogananda took his disciples to it. It's about the life of Gyaneshwar, or Gyandev. And you can actually watch the whole movie on YouTube. It's the 1940 black-and-white version. But there's a beautiful expression of just deep devotion. That's the type of thing that if you just watch or watch others expressing devotion like this, it is that red-hot coal that can awaken your own. And it's a devotee of Gyandev's who was a great saint. And it's a young girl who knew him when he was a child and I think recognized that he was a saint from the beginning. But her father was this arrogant Brahmin who was partly responsible for throwing Gandev and his family as outcasts out of the village and persecuting them. So she had to be secret in her devotion to Gandev. And so she followed him from afar, and she was at the bathing ghat, and she saw him very early in the morning. He was coming from the bathing ghat, and there was nobody around. And she couldn't be outward in her expression of devotion. And so what she did was she followed at a a far distance. And just the way the movie expresses it is very sweet. She follows him in his wet footprints that he leaves on the marble floor. At a far distance, she follows and she lays a flower on each wet footprint with a great deal of love and reverence. And he doesn't see her and nobody knows that she's expressing that devotion. And this is really the deepest, truest devotion. It's secret. Yogananda recommended not wearing your devotion on your heart sleeve or your shirt sleeve, in a sense. And just, you will find that if you find ways to be creative in expressing it, it also starts to sort of turn this devotional energy in yourself. And eventually, again, devotion is this precursor to divine bliss. The next lines in this chant, Thy transmuting lamp entrancing wondrous are its rays. This is, I think every devotee experiences this at the beginning of meditation. You start to have experiences of divine light and it starts encouraging you. And then this next line, this next stanza is really important. Change my darkness to thy light and my evil into good. I think Dharma Das touched on this idea, but I'm going to repeat it because it's so important. People think that in order to go into meditation, in order to go present ourselves to God, that we have to be perfect. And this is saying, essentially, that you can be evil. God's job is to turn our evil into good. That's not our job, necessarily. We do our darn best. But we have this image in our minds that when we go see someone really important, we have to look our sharpest best. I think if we were to go see the President of the United States we would all think we have to maybe buy some new clothes, get our hair done really nice, make sure we don't have any food stuck in our teeth, and just look really, really absolutely perfect. And so we somehow equate that to going to God, to the Lord of the universe, who's way, way above the President of the United States. And we don't have to think that way at all. We don't have to in a sense, get all the proverbial food out of our proverbial teeth. 
All we have to do is be sincere and offer ourselves with that sense of devotional self-offering. And God's job is to turn our evil into good. And so go with that sincerity, with that openness, with that childlike trust, and you'll find that the purpose of meditation, of Kriya, its goal is to change our funkiness into good. And this next line touches on really the deepest way how Kriya Yoga really works. Touch me but once, and I will change all my clay into thy gold. Touch me but once, and I will change all thy clay into thy gold. I often say that Kriya Yoga is the great spiritual alchemy because it changes our worst funkiness into divine gold. I think whoever wrote this chant realized that it was going to be chanted in polite company, so they used the word clay rather than some other words that could be a a lot more descriptive, let's say, (laughs) stuff, I'll just say stuff, into gold. And you see that Kriya has this power to do that, and it's not a promise. You actually see it happening. Swami Kriyananda would tell a story, a really interesting story, about a woman in the 50s, I think it was, and she had a past life reading from the famous psychic Edgar Cayce. And this woman had exquisitely beautiful hands to the point where she was really in demand as a model for her hands because they were so beautiful. And Edgar Casey said something interesting. He said that in her past life, she was a nun in a convent, and she would often scrub the floors on her hands and knees. And by doing it with a sense of deep devotional self-offering, her hands became divine, in a sense, through offering herself in that way. And you know, not every nun in a past life in a convent has beautiful hands, because some of them probably are muttering under their breath as they're on their hands and knees. But by offering anything to God, it becomes transmuted. Our ugliness becomes beauty. Evil becomes good. The way that Kriya, why it is so powerful, is because Kriya, like other practices of prayer and devotion and offering and even service, when we work with the energy in Kriya, we offer the energy up the spine and we offer our entire being, all, all of it. We don't hold anything back. We offer it with devotion. We offer it, offer it with self-offering. Everything is one big package of our entire self. And what happens is that it gets offered up into that light, and that light, that divine grace, enters us, and it blesses the whole package. And in a sense, all of our karma become sanctified. And this is how someone becomes a saint, by continually offering themselves into the light until all their clay is turned into gold. And that really, I think, describes more than anything why Kriya is such an extraordinary technique. But it also gives us a hint about the right way to practice the technique of Kriya. But really, any true self-offering in meditation, in service, and in devotion The next line, all the sense lamps that I did light have suited into worries. Obviously, as we follow this path, we're also working on withdrawing the life force from the senses, working at our issues the best we can, but also even offering those to God and asking for God's help with them. And finally, the last 
sitting at the door of my soul, light thy resurrecting lamp, sitting at the door of my soul, light thy resurrecting lamp. If there's one thing that I think you could say about Ananda people that is probably more life-changing than anything, is something that many of our speakers have already mentioned, is that every day, essentially, when you you know, get launched on the path of Kriya and receive Kriya initiation, you make basically a commitment that every day, morning and evening, for the rest of your life, you are going to sit at the door of your soul and offer yourself into God's light. And I promise you, I guarantee it, this is a 100% guarantee, that if you're not already doing it, if starting now, every day for the rest of your life, morning and evening, you sit at the door of your soul, working with meditation, with devotion, whatever your path, path of Kriya is especially good, and offer yourself into that light with devotion, with self-offering, you will be sanctified by the end of this life. And this is the promise that Yogananda gave about the path of Kriya. When it's done in the right way, and this is the right way that all of us have been talking about, right attitude, devotion, self-offering, all these things. In the end, by offering your entire life to God with devotion, with willingness, with service to others, your entire being becomes sanctified. And this really is the way that saints are made. More than anything else, it's not by some huge epical struggle you know, against attachments and desires because we have those things. We give those to God, and again, that clay is turned into gold. This is the path of Kriya Yoga. Now, one final thing, because this at Ananda Village, and we have a lot of people visiting here this week, in the great Indian scriptures, a lot of them start out in this one very specific place that's not talked about much. And Ananta yesterday mentioned the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is also called the Bhagavata Purana in India. And it starts out in a place called the Naimisha Forest. And the Naimisha Forest is a place where all the sages go to for spiritual refreshment, uh, to do ceremonies. And this long epic of the Srimad Bhagavatam starts off with the sage going there and the sutta or the storyteller spend seven days, which is as long as spiritual renewal week is actually, telling the story of the life of Krishna and all that he went through and profound spiritual teachings. And so many people, I think Ananda is like the Naimisha forest because you come here and the magic of the play last night and the concert the night before and all these great sages coming here and sharing wisdom and just the vibrations here. And it's said that the Naimisha forest is beyond the effect and influence of the yugas. And so this is one reason why the sages go there. And it almost feels like that here at Ananda. We're in this little astral bubble. But then we have to go back out, most people here, out back to careers, to families. And so it's a little bit more difficult to remember these things. And it's helpful to follow some advice that Yogananda gave as a way of remembering. Because, first of all, the best way to remember is morning and evening sit at the door of your soul, and you'll be reminded. But also, Yogananda said, he gave the analogy repeatedly, and so I give it repeatedly, following his footsteps, that this dream, this world that we're in, he said it's like a movie. And he said he was in a movie theater watching the carnage of the world war on the screen. And he realized that there was a beam of light that was showing this carnage. 
and he looked at the beam of light, and he followed it back and saw that there was a projection booth, and that this beam of light was really just the light coming from God. And he described this, this world as the same thing. It's just light and shadows. It's light coming from God. And looking back up that beam to the director is simply what we're doing when we meditate. We're looking back at the spiritual eye, back up the light to our origin, to the director, and try to have a remembrance of this every day if you can. Another great saint, St. Teresa of Lisieux, put it another way. She said, This world's thy ship and not thy home. This world is thy ship and not thy home. The purpose of this dream is a journey that we're on. It's not our home. And I think that, especially for people who have been on the spiritual path and are practicing these things, that's what catches them the most is there's a relationship blow up, there's a career blow up, there's a challenge, there's health, all these things. And we think that this is the reality. But try to remember this every day. Put it on your refrigerator if you have to, that this world's thy ship and not thy home. And if you can live in this freedom every day, playing your role as you're supposed to, whether it's with a career, family, relationships, you'll find that there's a growing inner freedom and that when the director of the movie says, cut, the movie's over, your part is done, you will be able to leave this show with an extraordinary amount of freedom. And you will have traveled that journey that St. Teresa of Lisieux was talking about because this journey is really the journey to bliss. And the outward part of it may look the same for two people following the same journey. But if you follow it with all the practices, the approach that we've been talking about, if you follow it with devotion, with inner freedom, with these spiritual practices of Kriya, you'll find at the end of your life that you can honestly say, like my wife Maria did at the end of her life, she followed these things and she said repeatedly to me, don't worry, I'm free. And that is what Kriya Yoga gives to us, is what following these things, the way that we've been talking, give to us. And so may we all be free in divine bliss and we may we all follow the path of divine love to get there. Om Shanti Shanti. Amen. Mm-hmm.